Good morning, everybody. Good morning. If you've been around Cedar Home for the last few months, uh, each time I've been up to preach, I've given kind of an overview sermon on one of the minor prophets, which are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And so far, if you've been with us, we've made it through 10 of them. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Haggai. So we've only got two left, Zechariah and Malachi. And my plan has been to preach just two more sermons to finish our time in the Minor Prophets, but as I was preparing my overview sermon for Zechariah, the book we're gonna be looking at this morning, I realized that, well, basically to preach the whole book in one shot and really do it justice, I think I'd have to keep us all here all afternoon. So, my new plan is to preach through Zechariah in probably nine or 10 sermons. And, <laughs> and here's why. The book begins with a summary statement of Zechariah's message, and that is that heaven is meeting earth because God is coming for his people. And then in the rest of chapter one through chapter six, Zechariah receives eight night visions or dreams from God in which he's shown symbolic images of what God's coming and this reuniting of heaven and earth means for the people of God. And then in chapters seven through 14, these night visions are basically recast in poems and oracles about God's coming. So this morning, I'm gonna preach on Zechariah's summary statement, chapter one, verses one through six. And then each following sermon will be on one of his eight night visions in chapters one through six. And I'll also be drawing from some of the oracles and poems later in the book in those night vision sermons so that hopefully we'll hit all of Zechariah's prophecy, even though we're gonna be focusing most of our time and attention on just the first half of the book. So anyways, that's where we're going. I am super excited because Zechariah is an amazing book, one of my favorites, and um, yeah, so before we get going this morning, let me just pray for our time here together. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace to understand your word and that you would give us the grace to respond appropriately and Lord, I just wanna pray against the schemes of the evil one who does not want your word preached in this place this morning and who does not want your people to be changed by your word. Lord, I ask, please bind the enemy and drive back the darkness and every falsehood with the light and power and majesty of your truth. Amen. All right. Our passage this morning, go ahead and turn there, Zechariah chapter one, verses one through six. Uh, if you turn to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and then just turn back to the left a couple books, you'll find yourself in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter one, verses one through six. Let me read it now. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Idu, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord, Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, 
to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So we see three things God is doing here. God is cautioning his people against being like their fathers, and God is calling his people to return to him, and then we have the promise that God is coming for his people. He says, return to me and I will return to you. So God is cautioning his people, God is calling his people, and we have the promise that God is coming for his people. Now before we look at those three things, note that Zechariah is receiving this word from the Lord in the eighth month, which is actually late October, early November, according to the ancient Hebrew calendar and not our modern Gregorian calendar, in the second year of Darius, the king of Persia, 520 BC. And if you were here about a month ago, when we looked at the book of Haggai, you may recall that Haggai received his first word from the Lord in the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So Zechariah is prophesying just a couple months after Haggai received his first word from the Lord. And like Haggai, Zechariah is prophesying to the Judeans, the people of Judah. And just to refresh our memories a bit from last time, Here's what happened in Judah. God sent the prophets Micah, Isaiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah, warning them of God's coming judgment upon them if they would not repent of their sin and return to him, which is precisely what they did not do, which led to the massive invasion and exile of Judah by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586 BC. And of course, we talked about this last time, the worst thing about the exile in 586 BC was not that Jerusalem and the temple were utterly destroyed and not that the Judeans were taken away from their land. The worst thing was that they were being driven out by God through Babylon away from his presence because of their sin. They were being driven out by God away from his presence This was the tragedy of the exile, just as the tragedy of Adam and Eve's banishment from the Garden of Eden, right? After all, what made Eden paradise and what made Canaan the holy land and what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God, the presence of God. And then in 539 BC, King Cyrus II rose to power in Persia and conquered Babylon. And then a year later, he issued a decree that allowed all the exiles in Babylon to return to their homelands. And in the book of Ezra, chapter two, we learn that 42,360 Judeans, plus many servants and singers, returned to Judah under the leadership of a guy named Sheshbazar. But then Sheshbazar died, and he was succeeded by his nephew Zerubbabel, 
And then under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, the people built an altar and made a sacrifice on the ruins of the old temple. And they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles and they gathered wood and other building materials from Tyre and Sidon. And in 536 BC, they laid the foundations of the new temple. But then the Samaritans incessantly harassed them for 16 long years. And for 16 long years, the Judeans ceased work on the temple altogether. But then, in 520 BC, a cease and desist decree came down from the new king of Persia, King Darius, which basically said, Samaritans, leave the Judeans alone and let them rebuild their temple in peace. And then, we talked about last time in the book of Haggai, we learned why the Judeans had been avoiding the temple like the plague for 16 years, and it was not just because of harassment. It was because, apparently, they used the wood that had been designated for the rebuilding of God's house to build their own houses. So they were stealing from God to serve themselves. And what we also talked about last time was that the Judeans didn't even realize that, in a sense, they were still in exile. They thought they had returned because they were back in the land, but they had yet to return to God. And the temple, where God's presence dwelt among his people, the temple lying in ruins was the proof. It was a picture of their spiritual condition. But God, in his mercy, stirred up the spirits of the people at the end of Haggai chapter one, so that they listened to him, and they obeyed him, and they began work on the temple once again for the first time in 16 years. And so now, a couple months later, God has raised up another prophet to speak to the people, and curiously, the very first message God has for Zechariah to deliver to the people of Judah is not, way to go, guys. You're making good progress. Keep building. Or, remember, God is always with you. Keep going. No, it's a very weighty word of caution, beginning in verse two. He says, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Not exactly an encouraging word, rather a very hard word. And that's because in this situation, God wants to remind the Judeans of something about himself. And this hard word reminds us that our God is a holy God. Our God is a holy God. And yes, of course, he's loving and gracious and merciful, but like any good parent who loves his kids to death, his kids' sin and rebellion against him provokes him to righteous anger. And I think this is so important for us to remember that God is not like a soft, naive, pushover, great grandpa who just spends all day doing crossword puzzles from his favorite chair and worrying about his family and handing out Werther's original caramel candies to passers-by and when sinned against just says, oh, that's not very nice, without ever saying enough is enough. How dare you? I am so angry with you. That is the holy God. 
He is not to be trifled with. He is to be feared. He is not great grandpa. He is the great I am. And he was so angry with the people's fathers that he banished them from his presence, allowing them to be taken captive to Babylon for nearly 70 years. And then in verse four, God continues cautioning his people saying, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. When I was preparing for this sermon, I was just thinking about the reality that Natalie and I are about to become parents for the first time to our little boy, Ezra. And all I could think about was what a tragedy it would be for me to not model for my son what a godly man looks like and for him to grow up thinking, man, my dad, he's an example of who I never want to be. And for me to go down in family history as an everlasting example of who not to be like. Some of you grew up with those don't be like this person examples in your family, didn't you? Maybe it was an uncle or an aunt or a cousin or maybe even a brother or a sister or maybe even one of your own parents. And it's tragic and it often takes a toll on the whole family because we love these people but I think this passage shows us that it's valuable to identify not only the people we want to become like, but also the people we don't want to become like. And that's because we are apt to imitate. And people can so easily rub off on us for good or bad. And there are just so many places in scripture where God sets forth examples of who not to be like that I think that even if it seems uncharitable, I think it's important for us to clearly delineate which legacies and influences and examples are healthy for us and which ones are not. Because we never want to become so soft and naive that we find ourselves imitating bad examples who've rubbed off on us without us even realizing it. And then in verses five and six A, God asks three questions. Your fathers, where are they? Answer. They're buried in Babylon. And the prophets, do they live forever? Answer, no. Not even the prophets live forever. Death comes to all because all have sinned. But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Answer, yes, they did overtake their fathers. They caught up with them and were fulfilled against them just as the Lord said they would. Now, notice what God's doing here. He says, your fathers, dead. And the prophets, dead. But, coordinating conjunction, but my words, dot, 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 to say that his words are of a different nature than man. Which is exactly what Isaiah chapter 40 and 1 Peter chapter 1 say. All men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field, and the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of God stands forever. Meaning all men are doomed to perish, but God's word never perishes. And so what I think God is ultimately saying here is that his words were not buried 
along with the fathers who are now buried. And his words did not die along with the prophets who are now dead. Meaning, what God has commanded and called his people to has not changed. Meaning, the Judeans ought to heed those words spoken by the prophets to their fathers, not ever thinking that they had an expiration date, lest they share in their father's fate. And what were those timeless, unchanging words? Verse 3b, they were a calling, return to me. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Verse four tells us that these are the words the former prophets cried out to their fathers, but they didn't listen. And they continued to shut their ears and ignore God's warnings until it was too late and they found themselves in exile. And only then did the people finally acknowledge their sin before God and repent. As verse 6b says, so then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So in our passage this morning, God is cautioning his people against being like their fathers with whom he was very angry because they ignored his prophets and did not listen to him and as a result were banished from his presence. And God is calling his people to the same thing he called their fathers to, to return to him after they had turned away from him, that he might return to them. In which case we have the promise that God is coming for his people. God is coming for his people. Now, as I said earlier, Zechariah's whole prophecy is about how heaven is meeting earth because God is coming for his people. And so, while God's cautioning and calling are obviously important parts of Zechariah's message, it's God's coming for his people, which is the focal point of Zechariah's message, which means that the summary statement of the whole book of Zechariah is the words, I will return to you. I will return to you. The rest of the book just illustrates and applies that promise, which means that the rest of our time in Zechariah after this Sunday is just gonna be a whole bunch of encouragement and hope, which is pretty awesome. So, because we're gonna be spending eight or nine other sermons talking about the promise that God is coming for his people, this morning, I wanna specifically focus on these first two aspects of Zechariah's message, God's cautioning and God's calling. And we already applied this cautioning a little bit, talking about the don't be like this person examples in our own families, but what about those influences outside of our families? What about those historical influences who've had such an impact on society and the culture that we rightly call them the father of this and the father of that. I thought of three examples, three historical fathers that have had a significant impact on Western civilization and how, on how much of our post-Christian culture thinks. And the first is Voltaire one of the fathers of the Enlightenment who was very hostile toward Christianity and who said in 1778, 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. 
100 years from today, 1778, the Bible will be a forgotten book. Now, 240 years later, we know that he's very wrong, and yet, how many people in our culture today think of the Bible, the most influential, most read, most quoted, best-selling book of all time, and the book other books have written on more than any other book, and the book that provided the very framework upon which all of Western civilization was founded, how many people in our culture today think of the Bible as something that is well on its way to being forgotten? And how many Christians today are embarrassed to talk about the Bible or to completely trust the Bible because of the propagation of silly ideas as Voltaire's? The second is Friedrich Nietzsche, the father of nihilism, who famously pronounced the death of God in 1882, saying, God is dead, and we have killed him. God is dead, and we have killed him. The problem is that we've been totally unsuccessful at killing off God, because for all of human history, most of the people on the planet have been of the persuasion that there is a God, and this has not changed. And yet, how many voices in our culture are championing Nietzsche's words as if they were the very words of God himself, authoritative and final? And how many Christians are just letting those voices get away with making pithy, unsubstantiated claims about the death of God and the idiocy of religious belief because they've blindly bought into the lies that follow from death of God theology, that faith and science are irreconcilable, or that faith and reason are irreconcilable, or that faith and history are irreconcilable. And the third is Benjamin Franklin, one of our nation's founding fathers, who was not a Christian and yet popularized one of the most notorious phrases that people think is in the Bible, but isn't. God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard it? Have you said it? God helps those who help themselves. Not only does the Bible not teach this, it's actually the exact opposite of what the Bible does teach. Proverbs 28, 26 speaks against any notion of self-reliance, saying those who trust in themselves are fools. And Romans chapter five, verses six and eight says that we are utterly helpless and totally dependent upon God for everything. And Philippians chapter two, verse 13 says that it is God who works within us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And over and over again, the story of scripture is that we can't do it, but God can and God does by his grace. And we are to praise him for it, ascribing all glory and honor and power unto him who is able. He's the one who literally had to take on human flesh to come and save us because we could not save ourselves. And he's the one that has to come to us today by the Holy Spirit to make us spiritually alive because by nature we are spiritually dead. And you know what, dead people can't do much. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine puts the final nail in the coffin. For by grace 
you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Think about this. If it's our effort to help ourselves which results in God's help, then we've earned his help. But if it's earned, it's not of grace. And if it's not of grace, it's not of God. Checkmate, Ben Franklin. God only helps those who cannot help themselves. But I wonder how many Christians' faith and understanding of God is based in some part upon little sayings or slogans or song lyrics or memes or whatever that are not only biblically inaccurate but are by people who aren't even Christian. And I wonder how many Christians can't even discern biblical truth from falsehood because they're more acquainted with falsehoods than with biblical truths. The truth is that we live in a world that is permeated with false ideas about the Bible, about God, about heaven, about hell, about ourselves, about our purpose, about meaning, about truth, about sex, about gender, about our work, about our money, about marriage, and many bad examples have rubbed off on us without us even realizing it. And so I think that in application for us to heed God's cautioning looks like identifying these influences by God's grace and invalidating these influences before we find ourselves imitating these influences. Let me say that again. Identifying these influences and invalidating these influences before we find ourselves imitating these influences. Because as I said earlier, we are apt to imitate. We need to be on guard. Now, what about God's calling? God's calling. Well, if you were here when I preached last on the book of Haggai, you may recall that that whole sermon was on returning to God which is God's call to Judah here in the passage we're looking at this morning. And at the end of that sermon, I was talking about the relevance of Haggai's message to us today, noting that even blood-bought, redeemed exiles in Christ sometimes find themselves back in Babylon, back in the world after they've been called out of the world, or half-heartedly returned half-heartedly returned, meaning they surround themselves with all the right people and they spend their time in all the right places and they say all the right things but they've distanced themselves ever so slightly from God that in a sense, they're still in exile. They're only half-heartedly returned. And then I gave five character examples of half-hearted return. The first was the Bible watcher who just watches his Bible collecting dust on his nightstand day after day after day because he has little desire to hear from God. And another was the prayerless commuter who spends a couple hours in his car going to and from work every day but still finds himself too busy to pray 
because other things like podcasts and music and talk radio are more important to him than talking to God. And another was the unneighborly neighbor who's been living in the neighborhood for an entire year but still hasn't made a single effort to get to know his neighbors, let alone find ways to love them and witness to them because he's so focused on himself and his own family that he doesn't give other people the time of day. And another was the intimacy avoider who won't join a community group or even just open up to a brother in Christ. Perhaps because he knows that if he does, if he's honest and real, he'll be confronted in his sin, which he isn't prepared to part with. And then the last was the blessing hoarder who's been richly blessed by God and yet refuses to become a blessing to others because he's greedy and possessive. And if you were here for that, that sermon, maybe you were sitting here feeling convicted that Perhaps there are areas in your life where you are not fully submitted and fully returned to God. You're only half-heartedly returned. And I think there's one of maybe six things that happened to you that morning. And if you weren't here, you can just think about this with us now. But I think there's one of maybe six things that happened to you this, that morning. Number one, you didn't feel convicted at all. And you didn't change your ways. Or number two, you felt convicted, but then you hardened your heart, unwilling to change. Or number three, you felt convicted, and you were so thankful to God for his graciousness toward you in light of your sin, but you still didn't change your ways. Or number four, you felt convicted, and you were so terrified of what might happen to you if you persist in your sin but you still didn't change your ways. Or number five, you felt convicted and you were so troubled and pained over your sin, really grieved over it, but you still didn't change your ways. And number six, you felt convicted and by God's grace, you repented and you changed your ways and now things are looking different in your walk with God. So notice that the only response that resulted in change was the response that included genuine repentance. Because what genuine repentance is not is being so thankful for God's graciousness in light of our sin. Oh Lord, thank you so much that this sin hasn't utterly destroyed me. Isn't it possible to be a thankful sinner but not a repentant sinner? or being so terrified of what might happen if we persist in our sin. Oh Lord, please don't let terrible things happen to me because of this sin. Isn't it possible to be a terrified sinner but not a repentant sinner? Or being deeply troubled over our sin. Lord, this sin is killing me. It's eating me alive and I'm so miserable. But isn't it possible to be sorrowful over the pain of sin, but not the sin of sin? 
In the Greek New Testament, the word translated repentance is metanoia, which means to change one's mind. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, the word translated repentance is shub, which means simply to turn back. Turn back. And so in both the Hebrew and the Greek, the idea is that you are going one way, but now you're turning and you're deciding to go the other way. You're changing your direction. And so when God cautions his people in this passage saying, do not be like your fathers, it's because they turned away from God and went the other way. And when God calls his people saying, return to me, it's because now he is summoning his people back to himself. And when God promises that he is coming for his people, saying, I will return to you, it's because like the father in the parable of the prodigal son who ran out to embrace his son who was returning home, God is not sitting around in his favorite chair doing crossword puzzles, just waiting for his people to come home. No. No. The second we turn, we find that he was already standing right there because he has run out to meet us and he is there to embrace us and to carry us home rejoicing. And This is just so astonishing because we, by nature, are bent on following the course of this world and following the the desires of our flesh, and we don't want to turn to God. And we don't want to go God's way. And God had every right to just let us go unto our own destruction. But God, in his mercy, came for us in Jesus, the Son of God and Savior sent from heaven, who instead of following the course of this world or just charting his own course, was obedient to follow the will of his Father. And then in love, Jesus offered up his life for us upon the cross, dying the death that we should have died in our place in order to open up a way of access and return to God for all who would repent, turn away from their sin, and turn to God. And if we, as Christians, believe that and yet refuse to repent, we refuse to turn away from our sin, to turn to God in any area of our life, in any area of our life, then what we are essentially saying is, God, I would like to accept the grace and forgiveness that is in your Son who suffered, bled, died, and rose in my place, and who was fully obedient to you in my place. But I don't want to follow in his footsteps. I don't want to become obedient like he was. I don't want to offer up my life as a living sacrifice. I don't want to be conformed to the image of your son. Now, I want salvation, but I don't want sanctification. I want your benefits, but I don't want you. And for some of you, maybe you've been coming to church for years, but that's where you're at. That's where you're at this morning, if you're honest. 
You want a savior, sure, but you don't want a Lord. You want to be Lord. And if that's you and you claim to know Jesus, I'd ask you, who do you think Jesus is? Because he is not a get out of jail free card. He is the God of the universe and he's what it's all about and he is to be feared and to be worshiped and to be lived for. And you don't get Jesus, you don't get Jesus until you turn away from everything and come empty handed to him. Right? That's why the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus dismayed because Jesus wouldn't extend salvation to a man whose hands were filled with other things that he wasn't willing to part with for the sake of Jesus. And I fear greatly for those professing Christians who will spend their entire life clinging to the world and only feeling for God, thinking that they've touched him thinking that they know him. And then on the last day, Jesus will say, as he did in Matthew chapter seven, they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and that and all these things in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. Your hand was clean to the world. You were feeling for something. It wasn't me. You didn't know me. I didn't know you. Jesus said, I am the way to God and the truth from God and the life of God and no one comes to the Father but through me. And you know what? Jesus never said that the way is easy. His disciples who decided to follow him had to leave behind everything. And Jesus said the road is narrow and the way is hard. And Jesus said the world is going to hate you because they hated me. But the point Oh, the point I'm trying to make is praise God that there is a way at all because there didn't have to be. And don't you see that it's a path that's paved with blood? Jesus gave it all and paid it all to return you to the presence of God because he loves you and he wants your heart. And if this, the gospel, will not move our hearts to repentance and cause us to count everything as loss for the sake of knowing this gracious Savior, then I don't know what will. And so my prayer is that it will for all of us. And my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would come and move with power in this place, bringing conviction and granting repentance so that nobody would leave this room unchanged that we would not come here week after week, month after month, year after year, singing to him, praying to him, hearing his word preached, and yet refuse to really submit ourselves before him in the way that he desires for all of his blood-bought, redeemed exiles in Christ. This is a hard word this morning but, oh, it's a word from a God who is so gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And it's a word that will set us up for all of the encouragement and hope in the rest of Zechariah, which applies to all who have heeded God's cautionings and callings by repenting. And so I wanna give us an opportunity to do that this morning just from our own seats. 
If there's a specific area in your life that you sense the Holy Spirit convicting you over right now, an area where you are not fully submitted and returned to the Lord, then I pray that you will not harden your heart. I pray desperately that you will not harden your heart, but that instead you would repent, that you would forsake your ways and that you would run to Jesus, knowing that when we do, we will find that he has already come out running to meet us and that he will embrace us and that he will forgive us and that he will speak tenderly to us like a father to a son whom he loves literally to death. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 22 says, therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. I wanna give us a minute just to be silent before God, praying to him and listening to him, and then I'll close this in prayer. Will you stand with me? I just thought of the words of an old song by Keith Green called Rushing Wind, and the, 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 the first words in that song go, rushing wind blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within. That's my prayer for myself this morning. Lord God, would you come and blow out this dust within? But let me pray for all of us. Lord God, I just wanna thank you this morning personally before my brothers and sisters here for calling me, for calling me to be a minister of your gospel and for working in my heart to make me so confident to boldly proclaim the glories of Jesus unashamedly, trusting and fully expecting that you will save people and change people in this room by your grace. You will do it, Lord. Lord God, I pray that for those here this morning who feel no conviction of sin before you, that you would pierce through their hardened hearts as those nails that were pierced through the hands of your son. And that you would save these people who are utterly incapable of saving themselves and utterly incapable of knowing you unless you reveal yourself to them. And Lord, I pray for those here this morning who are convicted of sin but right now are 
teeter-tottering on the edge of what to do about it. Lord, I just ask that you would remind them now that you have already done something about it in Jesus and that you would melt their hearts and move them to repentance. And Lord, I thank you for those hearts that you have already moved to repentance this morning. We know that there is much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and returns to you. So Lord, as I stand behind this pulpit now, I stand behind you and I just ask you to do your work, to move us to repentance and to apply your word to our hearts and to exalt yourself in us for your glory alone. Amen. Go in the grace of God that was purchased for you in Jesus.